Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A new podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Hello and welcome. I'm David Bodicum. I'm a TV producer and games consultant working out of London. And I'm Justin Scroggy. I'm a TV format creator and an international consultant based in the UK. And what's the purpose of this podcast? Well, the TV industry remains a major creative force in all of our lives, but it's one that's facing a number of challenges. Whether you work in the industry or simply interested in how it works, we're going to look at how programs get made, who makes them and why. Uh, so this is our first show and we've got a fantastic first guest we've got an in-depth interview with the inventor and co-host of taskmaster that's alex horn but otherwise let's just crash into the news and in america uh, on jeopardy we've had a new multi-show champion matt amodio has won 38 times in a row banking him 1.5 million dollars uh, it's been an interesting few months for the Jeopardy format uh, as uh, executive Mike Richards became and then unbecame <laughs> the host of, of Jeopardy after uh, a number of queries about the, the, his suitability for the hosting role. And now um, Mayim Bialik is, uh, is hosting. She's uh, from Big Bang Theory. A sad news from Japan, Justin. Okay. Um, it's been the final show of Panel Quiz Attack 25. Right. Now, this is, this is one of these formats that you, now you're saying, oh, I've never heard of this, David. Tell me all about this. Well, I will. Um, so this is a show that's been going since 1975. Wow. And it's only just finished. There's only been three hosts of it in all that time. Wow. I think the first host lasted 34 years. And it, basically, it's just Quiz Reversi or Quiz Othello. It's just one of those shows that just run and run and run. But if I'm right, um, Mastermind is actually older than that, isn't it? Mastermind started in 1972. Oh, I'm not saying it's this is the world's like oldest quiz show ever, right. <clears throat> but certainly it's sort of as a piece of quiz show history, it's definitely got a, its place. Can you guess what Race Against the Tide is about? This just sounds like competitive drowning, for all I can tell. <laughs> or competitive uh, burying your father in the sand. No, actually, it's a sand sculpting contest which is from the people who brought you Blown Away. Blown Away is the glass-blowing contest. As with any uh, sand sculpting, it has the unique time clock that um, you've got to complete it and show it off uh, before the tide comes in and washes your creation away. They're both made by Marble Media in Canada, who are excellent television producers um, and have got a very good light touch uh, with competitive reality programming. On the CW network in the USA, uh, Killer Camp has been pulled after just two shows. It's uh, started its second season, and uh, its demos were 0.05 and 0.03. I don't know what those mean, but I know that the noughts are bad. <laughs> um, Killer Camp was a, a spoof 1980s-style teen horror um, reality show where it was all about sort of jocks and cheerleaders and things like that. So people were encouraged to kind of somewhat play a part. 
mm-hmm. um, but the eliminations were done in the style of a, a schlock um, teen horror scene. And it uh, was um, effectively an ITV2 show here. Um, as a, right. That was the initial commission, I believe. But it's been pulled after two episodes. Yeah, just the two episodes. Wow. So um, it, it, is pretty bru- it is pretty brutal over there in the States. I mean, I know that the figures are always surprisingly low uh, for a country you know several hundred million that I, i'm always quite surprised with the hit show what the numbers are like uh, compared to the uk but then it is such a fragmented audience there are just so many so many channels and so many different places for the audience to go it is amazing that something can be a hit with you know half a million viewers 200,000 viewers also in ratings news only connect beat eastenders on the 4th of <laughs> october <laughs> 2021 uh, by 3.1 million to 2.9 million uh, although <laughs> host Victoria Coron Mitchell has said that uh, this was because um, Facebook and, and Twitter and things like that were down and people were bored and they just wanted something to watch. So, That's funny. Uh, <laughs> Back in the 90s, I used to produce comment uh, just after Channel 4 News. We quite regularly beat Channel 4 News in the ratings entirely because we were just before Brookside and therefore people were tuning in just before Brookside. But it always made me satisfied because we used to record comments at ITN where Channel 4 News was recorded and I used to tease them with the fact that we were beating them in the ratings. And finally, Sky One, a channel uh, that had its origins in satellite television in 1982, is no more. Its library has been effectively divided up into uh, other channels such as Sky Showcase and Sky Max. We'll be taking uh, more of a look into what the future for channels is in our big issue later in the show. And now it's time for our special in-depth interview. Our special guest today is a comedian, writer and format divisor. He made his debut at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe in 2000 with the show How to Avoid Huge Ships. He also tours with his comedy band, The Horn Section. And according to Owltale.com, this is his 26th podcast appearance. So we're honoured that he's found time to join us. It's Alex Horn. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, David. That's uh, a statistic. I didn't need to know, I think. I <laughs> just shows you're very nice and giving with your time, which, I, I mean, you are you must be television's busiest man. Well, I don't know about that, um, because there's always Ramesh Ranganathan. Um, <laughs> so currently you're teasing the nation with your book, Bring Me the Head of the Taskmaster, 101 Next Level Tasks and Clues that will lead one ordinary person to some extraordinary Taskmaster treasure. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the entire book. It's just, yeah. it's just, it's just one title. <laughs> it's, it's been a weird experience. So it's it's a treasure hunt book. It, well, it's the second Taskmaster book. And what I've always tried to do with Taskmaster is be responsible for any sort of tie-ins or spin-offs or merchandise, I suppose, because it's quite a could be a potentially grubby area if it looks like you're trying to milk your thing, I suppose. And I've always been keen that anything associated with the program is good. So the first book was just a load of tasks because people wanted to do tasks themselves at home so they were all brand new tasks for people to do but with the second one I wanted to do something slightly different because I realized from the first book how dedicated people out there are and how much people are so desperate to join in things so uh, inspired by Masquerade which I'm sure you both know about the book from 1979 I think by Kit Williams where he hid this uh, jewelry in the ground somewhere I've hidden Greg's head a silver version of the golden trophy somewhere 
And within two weeks, I was terrified that someone had cracked it because I, people work together. We have the internet nowadays and people sort of club together and got very close, but they still haven't breached the walls. And actually, there's a few time-locked bits in the book. So yeah. I'm hoping it's going to last at least a year. And this is something, this is something that you, you really enjoy doing is giving people silly things to do. I don't think it's anything. It's not something self-conscious or deliberate, really. My job has always been a stand-up comedian. That's that's the only job I've really had. I've been lucky enough to just about scrape by doing that from the age of 22 or 23. But I always lent heavily on other people from the beginning. I always used audience members or props and then later the band or other comedians like Tim Key and Mark Watson. And I guess that was always giving them something silly to do. So with the band, I always make the saxophonist try to play it left-handed or, or, or <laughs> the drummer drum standing up or the, the wrong way around from the drumstick uh, from the drums so I think it's just been an instinct and maybe it's a prop as well you know it's a it's a crutch that I don't quite trust myself to do things by myself and it's just more fun to get other people involved so I, yeah I don't really know where it's come from we had a vaguely playful family growing up a happy family where we did games at Christmas but it, I, I wasn't the games master in any way so I, I know it struck me with with a lot of your shows that's you have very few rules, but those rules are very important. Yes, I think that's completely true. And it's something we are still learning, I think. I think the first task we ever did had very simple rules. It was things like empty this bathtub, fastest wins, your time starts now. And I loved it when it was like that, when it could just be three lines. I think that's what that, those are the best tasks. If it's just, there was one which, it, there was an egg on the table and on the egg it said, eat me, fastest wins, your time starts now. That, that's great. But there's only so many tasks you can do like that. And I suppose it's an unusual program because we do change the rules every single episode, well, three times in every single episode. So we have to teach the audience and the contestants a new game every 15 minutes. And so they've, they've inevitably got more complicated. And also the contestants are getting cleverer. So they know that if it, if it says you must stand behind the line at all times, they now move the line unless we tell them not to move the line. So we have to put in quite a few sub clauses. But we still know that if we can condense something into three lines, it's the best. And it's the same with any writing, I think, you know, brevity and all that and, and joke telling. I like a shaggy dog, but I prefer one-liners. So, um, yes. And when I keep saying we, by the way, there's three of us. There's, there's two Andys, one who directs it, one who produces it. And I do come up with nearly all the tasks, but we fine-tune it together. And we're, we're quite a hopefully good little team. And we, we've always always shunned outsiders because because we're very protective of it i suppose uh but we know it probably would be sensible at some point to introduce other people but we're just too precious it's that dreaded sort of american american writer's room thing isn't it yeah i feel like we've got this far let's not let's not pollute it Mm -hmm. Uh, although we do get sent i I don't know how what your experience is we do get sent a lot of things from viewers lots of ideas uh often We've already thought of these ideas, I suppose, or, or but they can provide a good starting point to new to new ideas. But we really try not to do them wholesale. We don't try to, we don't want to nick people's ideas. I think that's part of the problem. It feels wrong to not acknowledge mm. or pay people, <laughs> but um, but also they're very specific things, so um, they're, they're quite hard to get right, I suppose. And when you ask me where 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 I got the idea of do, making people do silly things from, I probably should have said the Crystal Maze or the Krypton Factor. Or even challenge Annika because they were definitely the programs that I enjoyed most growing up. I don't. I, I think then things changed with uh, in my television viewing with things like Gladiators and then more and more reality stuff. But I did work on Big Brother 
when it was in its very early days, and some of their games were brilliant. Mm. And, and I had to games test some of them from within the house before the contestants went in. So you've done the hard hard yards as like a, a logger and, and runner on on various shows. You've also been a contestant. Uh, you were on four episodes of Countdown. Did the the experience of being on that side of the camera influence you at all? Uh, I think in retrospect, definitely I have an appreciation, and maybe subliminally it influenced me in some way. It was quite early in my comedy life. I think I was maybe twenty eight or something. Something like that. So I'd done a few Edinburgh shows, but I hadn't become a dad. Um, and I hadn't done any telly. But it was quite a comfortable situation because I was next to Arthur Smith in Dictionary Corner, who I knew vaguely. Hmm. Um, and it was Des O'Connor in the chair back then. And Carol Vorderman actually went to the same college as me. So it's, there's a lot of nepotism in my... Actually, there's, <laughs> there's no nepotism at all with Countdown. If people don't know, it's the best audition process ever. You just have to sit in a classroom and do a test. And the best people go through. They don't, they don't interview you. They're not looking for personality at all. Quite right, too. It was my first time in a TV studio. So I saw the warm-up guy, who was brilliant. I saw how efficient and professional everyone was. The, the records for a 45-minute program were about 48 minutes. <laughs> wow. And, uh, yeah, it flew by. And it was so tense because you hear the clock behind you. And I suppose it, it, I learned that things are real. So the music you can hear, the clock is literally whirring behind you. The letters board, you know, there's no magic to it it's all quite functional um mm. i definitely enjoyed it and i luckily didn't crumble under the pressure because it's <laughs> it's terrifying and i've since done mastermind and that's probably worse in terms of mm. just tense atmosphere one value of being a contestant is actually learning to to respect contestants as well yeah i guess that's almost certainly true and i think maybe one thing i would say on that is you've got to be fair with them as well if they think anything is not right, I mean, definitely on Countdown, people really spoke to us before about how you might appeal if you thought something was unfair. And anything I've done since, any any quiz show I've been on, there's always your legal person making sure that it's exactly fair on everyone. So, uh, and so, and weirdly, we do try to do that on Taskmaster. Hopefully, yeah, we treat people with respect. And let's let's give the credit for that to uh, Richard Whiteley. So the origins of Taskmaster are quite well known by now. You set it up as a competition, ran it as a stage show from Edinburgh. Take us through the sort of process of like going from there to a TV format where it was based on clips. The difference between that and the TV show was actually that they were done over a month. Each task, the contestants had a month to complete them. So I would email these contestants a task on the first of the month, like uh, drink a pint of rainwater, fastest wins. But they had a month to complete it. Or, or send me the largest thing in the post. Um, so in the, in the live show there, I was just recounting the tale of the year. So the 12 tasks, Hercules-esque, uh, that they did. But the contestants were there with me. And actually, the only live show, live live task was at the very end because uh, there was a tie, there was a tie break. So we made Josie Long and Tim Fitzhigham uh, put the most grapes in their mouth. Pretty basic stuff. <laughs> um, so it was condensing that into a TV format. So actually, it was shrinking things down rather than expanding. Really. So mm. instead of a month, they had an hour in the first series quite often, and then we shrunk that further after the first series. We rarely go beyond twenty minutes now because of editing schedules and filming schedules. And actually, you get what you need in 20 minutes. You, t- you tend to. And so then you, this, this idea was pitched around, including to Channel 4, who somewhat famously rejected it, which must have been a bit of a low point. How did you rebuild that into something that then Dave bought as a channel? Well, it's all a bit of a blur, to be honest. And uh, so we did it twice in Edinburgh. It was just meant to be a laugh. Well, it, it clearly worked the first one. It was really fun. It felt like a special Edinburgh thing that, to be a part of. So I did it again the following year with 10 people instead of 20, which felt more manageable. 
And that one we filmed with the idea of pitching it around, I suppose. But it went through lots of iterations, and Channel 4 actually gave us some money to develop it. So that money was spent on uh, working up the idea with Andy Devonshire, who became the director. And it was just trying all sorts of things. We, I think being too ambitious with it, at one point we had five comedians in a sort of uh, honeycomb structure above the stage. I don't know why, looking down at, some, at the audience. I don't know, we tried to make it too televisual, televisually interesting or something. We, tr- we went away from comedians for a bit. We, we would pitch it to, for example, ITV and pick very ITV names uh, and then just switch them to Channel 4 names for them and so on. So it wasn't very well thought through and it, was, it felt like just knocking on the door again and again. We pitched it to Dave in a, probably its closest version to what it is now, which was just comedians sitting in a room uh, in a theatre and I guess we were trying to make it a bit gladiatorial. So there was a stage area and we wanted the audience to be on all sides looking down at this event. And that we kind of held on to that a bit. And Dave said no as well, but then came back and said, actually, we've changed our mind. We think it's unusual because it's the same cast each week and you're not telling them what's going to happen, but we're prepared to take a risk. So it was definitely trial and error. Something that I've noticed, as you probably know, game shows kind of went into the wilderness for, for for about 10 years where, when reality television really took off and in coming back into prime time uh, game shows have inherited various things from reality television and one of those things is is a character um, and in the chase it's the chasers um, and we see it in other shows as well so how did the taskmaster kind of evolve as a character yeah greg's role was the one thing i think that changed most from episode one to episode 100 we did something called a show zero which is like a pilot episode where we did we'd film two tasks that we knew weren't going to make the series maybe three uh can't quite remember and we just ran a show with an audience but not for broadcast and in that episode greg was very very pantomime baddie there was no gray area it was all black and white it was it was just disdain for the contestants and afterwards we sat in the dressing room with frank skinner and josh and roisin and Tim and Ramesh, and they were all a bit shell-shocked. And they couldn't believe, they were saying, well, why were you so mean to us? We, we didn't know that's what the show was. We tried really hard on these things. And, and even when someone had done well, Greg was slightly nasty to them. And he had a cane. Um, <laughs> and it, yeah, he was just playing much more of a character than himself. And I think that's what softened. And we definitely are still playing characters. And I'm, you know, his meek servant. And, and we really enjoy that. But it's, it's much closer to reality now. When he's impressed... He, he says, I'm really impressed. Mm. And it, luckily, it's not very often. It's funnier when he's not. The, the fact that it's possible for the contestants to do well shows that it is possible to achieve these things. You've built in secrets or little shortcuts that may or may not have been discovered. I mean, there must be loads of those things where you know that these things are possible and none of the contestants have, 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 have discovered these things and you, you just sort of must be secretly squirreling these things away for the future and just try, trying again. Yeah, that's really true. It's a mix of a show, I think, in that some of the people who like it are fans of escape rooms and that world of uh, solving puzzles, whereas the other half of the people watching it don't care about any of that and just want to see people being silly and funny so we try to balance it i mean i think both camps can enjoy each other's things um but we try not to play down or play up i suppose we, we definitely try to include a few tasks each series with those elements and we always write something on the back of a task at some point <laughs> or hide something under the table and no one ever looks <laughs> no one no one ever learns um 
if, if people don't discover them, I do find it funny. And it's it's we always have recourse in the studio to show them what they should have done, I suppose, or all the clues. And uh, and I always end up looking a little bit smug, and Greg will take the mick, mick out of me for that. But I don't really mind. That's a sort of in joke, I suppose. Hmm. So, um, but what you're completely right about is squirreling ideas away. So most of the new tasks occur to me during old tasks. Someone will be doing something, and we'll think, "Oh, I know what will work." You know, a little twist on that, or or so on. So they're quite self-generating, and that, and that gives me hope that I'm not going to run dry. And we'll be speaking more to Alex later in the show. So in this part of the show, we're going to just uh, riff on what we've been watching this week. So um, I'm going to surprise you, Justin. Okay. I've been watching some documentaries. I've been catching up with Clarkson's Farm on Amazon oh, Prime yeah. Video. And I have to say, I, I watched uh, nearly all of it. It's a surprisingly charming series. Uh, I've, I've always been a Clarkson fan despite um, his various ups and downs with the media and, and in production. Interestingly, for me anyway, Clarkson's Farm is actually only about 20 minutes away from where I live. So we actually remember the, the opening of, the, of Clarkson's shop and the impact that had on local traffic um, and local businesses, which, which appears in the show. Just before lockdown, Jeremy Clarkson decided that he and his partner would take it on um, as the farmer's. And only a relatively short time later, they were hit by um, some of the worst flooding, lockdown, and a whole series of other things. And it starts off in quite a jokey way. But as the series goes on, he clearly takes it very seriously. He clearly gives it his best shot. And as someone who watches Countryfile and has taken in almost nothing about how farming works over about 10 years, I actually learned quite a lot about farming. See, that was for me what was good about the show is that it had a very good blend of there was there was characters, there was stuff happening, there was some, some pretty interesting facts dripped in, and although you could say, well, he's getting paid millions through other stuff he's done, in, uh, it still mattered to him what, what what the final outcome was, whether he made a profit or a loss, um, and. The, the future of the farm and also in terms of how to take a, a huge topic and split it in, into strands uh, in the way that they did with all the different hours. It, I think yeah. it was very, very carefully done. And then you quite cleverly um, had a layer of repeating jokes throughout the series as well. So it was very well structured. It was very well structured at the beginning. He buys this ridiculously large and expensive tractor Come on, it's a good tractor. It's got the wrong hitch on. What? That's a European hitch. What's the matter? I got it from Germany. Y you may well have done. So I can't attach anything to the back of this? Not at the moment. But it is a big tractor. I think it's a vast tractor up here. Uh, too big? Yes. Who knew that Lamborghini make tractors? And... It as you say, as a running joke, that tractor um, is both a, uh, a curse and a triumph throughout the series, as sometimes its size is a, is a help, but mostly its size is an absolute disaster in a, an extremely muddy and boggy farmland. What I'm watching at the moment is Murder Island. On Channel 4, it's a uh, six times one-hour episodes uh, on weekly. 
and it's four pairs of amateur detectives who are investigating the murder of a young woman on a remote Scottish island. Um, interestingly, it's been written by Ian Rankin, uh, who wrote the Rebus novels, something he got stuck into during lockdown, apparently. Like a classic murder, it's um, it's in a closed setting, a remote Scottish island, and therefore it has a limited number of suspects, in this case, nine. As you know, David, there's been a number of previous attempts at this genre or sub-genre of game. Um, <clears throat> I remember Murder Weekend. I think it was Michael Aspel back in 1989. There was Cluedo back in the 90s. Um, there was a thing called the Murder Game, and then, as you mentioned, uh, you've also recently worked, I think it was a couple of years ago, on Armchair Detective. Yes, which was that uh, you got to see chunks of the investigation and then use those clues to try and solve it um, as an armchair detective. Just uh, There were people in the studio trying to solve it, and then you, you at home, as the viewer, could also try and solve it as well. So that was in 2017 that came out. Right, okay. What was interesting with, uh, I think quite clever with Murder Island, was that rather than splitting between the uh, studio and the and the drama footage they brought it all together in one place um, so the contestants are on the island for seven days attempting to solve the crime but there are a lot of issues with this sort of genre um, and one of them obviously is it's got to be hard enough to be a proper game but it's got to be easy enough to be able to follow and to have a chance of playing along and again, if you're doing it that way, then you've got to keep adjusting the story um, and the contestants uh, according to what the contestants say and do, um, and also therefore the dialogue of the of the actors. The key problem with these things mm -hmm. is how do they ensure that the people who are trying to solve the murder don't miss too many key clues? Okay, so... This, again, is quite clever. So they've brought in uh, real detectives. So they have a real SIO, Senior Investigating Officer, um, and they have two uh, either serving or retired detectives, I'm not quite sure, who are also with them when they're interviewing suspects. This is where we believe that the victim lived. There is a forensic examination taking place. They will prepare a report, and then that will be sent through to all of you. What I need you all to do is to focus on preparing a watertight case that we can take to prosecution that is going to be successful at court. Does everybody understand? Yes, ma'am. Whilst they don't sort of point out things that they might miss in a room, um, they do tell them off if they've interviewed a suspect and totally forgot to ask a, quest a key question. They also periodically have to present their investigation so far to the SIO, who will then point out potentially things that they missed. So, for example, when they examined the crime scene, it was important, clearly, for the story that they had spotted £2,000 in cash and a passport, both of which they'd failed, all failed to notice, all eight of them. And therefore, she brought those things up and said, if you'd been proper detectives, you would have spotted these. So they're on mm -hmm. hand to kind of uh, steer, but they're also there to judge because they're eliminating people as they go along. Um, but it's fun. I've watched three episodes so far. Um, it did help that I watched it on catch-up. So... I wasn't waiting a week in between and I've, I have now caught up. So now I've got to wait a week and I think that will be a real test of the format as to whether I can remember anything uh, seven <laughs> days later.
And it's time for Ask the Doctor, where we get Justin Scroggy, the format doctor, to help answer some of your queries. I did see something on the uh, Facebook group that was a good one to start with, uh, which is why don't programs go out in the same order as they're recorded? Okay, so when you're recording a series, very often the first episode that you record might be the first episode you've ever made, or it might be effectively your pilot. Um, so at that point, um, it isn't necessarily your best show, um, or you've got things that you need to learn from that show. As a producer, I always try to have really, really good contestants, uh, the best contestants we've got in the first episode, because it gives people a chance in the studio, the, the production team, to get into the show and to find uh, how the show works. When it comes to transmission, I mean, first of all, you really want to put your most entertaining show and the one that explains the show the best um, as your first episode. Equally, you want to go out with a bang because you want to get the best possible ratings for your final episode and you want people to remember the show uh, as much as possible um, in the gap between that and the next season. So the first thing is that you're looking for your first and second episodes. If it's a show with a prize, um, then you're also looking at the flow of wins and loses or big wins and small wins. Um, so you tend to spread those out across um, a series if you're, if you're able to. Equally, uh, the same applies with the, with the um, makeup of the contestants. Um, you wouldn't want to have a whole run of, you know, male winners or female winners or, or, or you know, people defined by different age and, and so on. Jolly good. If you've got a, a query, then you can email us at contact at tvshowandtell.com and we'll try and answer your questions in a future episode. But now it's time to return to our interview with Taskmaster's Alex Horn, and I asked Alex about the general concept of tasks. John Lloyd, who devised QI, initially thought of QI as a whole concept, that it could be a TV show, a book, a physical club, and even in the future, like a school or a university. So did you ever, like, when did you sort of think that the whole concept of doing tasks could become something that's wider, as you did with the home tasking challenges on Twitter? Probably at that point, I say. It was, a, you know, a weird, I mean, I hate to use this phrase, but a sort of weird silver lining of the pandemic for me personally was I really did manage to engage with people who watched the show at that point and hopefully in a positive way. So I think already at that point there, there was a book and a board game, but I guess those things are often part and parcel with a game show format. But this home tasking idea was simply that a couple of parents had got in touch and said, we're, we're desperate, we're at home trying to homeschool but could you give us a task because that would be more fun? So I sent, I put a, a video up on YouTube and it was just throw something in the bin in the most in the most elaborate way. And it sort of took off instantly and lots of people did it. And it was really heartwarming to see families have fun or people at work who were still going to work have fun. And I guess, yeah, that really did take over my, the next few months of my life. And it felt quite, well, very vaguely important because it was a light relief for people. And I guess at that point, I realized that the show was also light relief for people. And there's nothing wrong with light relief. You know, if, if it can uh, help you through a difficult time or just distract mm. you. 
So I think from talking to people during the pandemic, I realised that Taskmaster meant a little bit more to them than I'd given it credit. I'm very happy to set people tasks, and I do try to respond. It's getting harder and harder, but I try to respond on Twitter when people ask for me to set one for their, you know, their dad's 80th or something. But it is weird when you look back and think, well, seven years ago this didn't exist, and now it is most of what I spend my time doing. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but it's... it's yeah, it's peculiar. And it's a thing that's now grown around the world. You, how many territories is the show um, now aired on? Yeah, that depends how you interpret the statistics. And the production company are quite generous with that. <laughs> <laughs> so I've sort of, I think I've read that it's in 130 countries. But I think what that is, because I think in something like Africa, BBC Africa is shown all over Africa. Mm. So that's 50 countries knocked off just like <clears> that. Um, but there's about... It's shown all over the place, but that what what interests me far more is that I think there's eight, nine, or ten countries that make their own versions, uh, and many of them are in their own languages, not in English. And I really enjoy that. The first one was in Belgium, so they made their version in Flemish, and they had their own taskmaster and their own assistant. And most of their tasks were our tasks, but since then, uh, lots of countries have come up with their own ones. And their tasks are, are brilliant often. And we, we've, we've inherited Swedish tasks and adapted them. The New Zealand series at the moment is one of my favourites. And I know a lot of people who watch it are going, slightly frustratingly, that it was <laughs> it's as good as our one. Yeah, I mean, all the cool kids are, are, are secretly watching the New Zealand version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there any possibility that they might show those episodes over here, do you think? There is definitely a possibility. As you'd imagine, there are talks behind the scenes. But... Uh, I, I would love to. I, I don't think it matters if you don't know any of the people in it. Uh, and we really try to do that in our show. We try to make sure there's at least one person no one's heard of. Or at least we try to make sure that you haven't heard of all five of the people. Watching five comedians you don't know in New Zealand, you get to know them so quickly through the tasks. And I really feel like I know them now. So, yeah, I, I'd love that show to be shown here. It's much more, I think it's slightly cruder in a charming way than our one. They're slightly ruder. They're slightly quicker to take their clothes off um but they've also got fewer health and safety regulations as do almost every country that i've seen how involved are you in that in that transition into a new territory yeah that's a good question that's something that all all this is completely new to me and hilarious and fun so at the beginning so we and the two andes and i went to belgium and chatted to them and were quite protective and maybe a little bit too hands-on uh, maybe we weren't very hands-on but uh they couldn't do it the same way as us. We learned pretty quickly because they don't have many comedians in Belgium. Mm. So they instantly realized, let's have four comedians and one different person who changed every week. So it's quite a big different format point. And we sort of slightly begrudged, well, I slightly begrudgingly agreed to that because I guess that they knew their TV more than we did. Uh, so learned, and, and it worked. Uh, but then they tried to do it in Spain and they did. They tried to turn it into a two-hour Saturday night show. I, I have a show on at the moment in Spain that's two hours and twenty minutes, and it was originally thirty-nine in in Canada. Yeah, and to be honest, it didn't work there, but we didn't get involved at all. So I guess I've been more hands-off since then. But New Zealand, I, I tell you what, I think what what I do is just what their producers want me to do. So we always send over a big bible explaining how every task works, how we do it, how the music works, how it's edited. And they tend to follow that pretty religiously, and that's great. But the New Zealand producers, called Bronwyn and Cam, who are a couple, who are absolutely brilliant, and they really wanted to know everything. So we spend a lot of time on the phone 
long, long zooms and long chats because they were desperate to get it right because they've shown all the English ones over there, all the UK versions over there. And New Zealand, they said, have a history of not liking New Zealand shows, giving them a hard time, especially New Zealand versions of existing shows. So they were mm. desperate to get it right. And uh, I was more than happy to help. I would have been even happier to go there. Mm. But <laughs> th there's two things there. There's the flight. Well, there's, there's a few things. There's the time difference, my own family, and then the pandemic. So um, I think Zoom's actually been very helpful uh, in lots of ways. You know, things like what we're doing at the moment. So um, moving away from television slightly, you also put out a video series on YouTube. You've got um, Bad Golf and um, No More Jockeys. We've um, both have had several runs. Um, you're already busy doing like your touring and your TV shows and writing everything. So why do you feel the need to, to feed the monster of YouTube with even more content that people can watch for free when you're already so busy with other things? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, there's probably a bit of... There's probably a few things in play. One is, as a freelancer like you guys, you you always think it's going to end at some point and you want to just make sure you've got other things. Mm. And, you know, genuinely Taskmaster could stop next year. We've got two more series or three more series with Channel 4 and then who knows? I mean, we're, I'm, I'm desperate to carry on for the record. But um, at some point it will stop. And uh, so it's nice to have things that are in the background. There's probably a slight bit of ego as well in that it's really fun to be on other things. Uh, I also am aware that TV is a weird place um, looking forwards. So it feels like YouTube is, sen is a sensible move as well. It feels sensible to have a presence on there because who knows what's going to happen with terrestrial TV. Also, oh, there's a lot of, I've got a lot of answers for you here. Also, it's really freeing doing YouTube because you don't have editors and channels telling you what to do. So you don't have a producer. Well, I love my producers, but you don't have an external person saying, don't do this. They're normally right, but it is really fun <laughs> to just do whatever you want and whatever length of thing you want to do. But the main reason was that I'm do we, I was doing these things anyway. I was playing golf with John Robbins once a month, and I was playing this game called No More Jockeys with Tim and Mark. We've been playing it for years, probably 20 years now. So we just thought, well, we are comedians and we're often on telly now, so we might as well film this. It's so easy now with iPhones and iMovie. So let's just stick it on there and see if anyone's interested. In the same way as Jack Black, I think, has a huge presence on online. He, he really doesn't need to do it. But it's a laugh. You know, it's really fun. It doesn't take up... It barely takes up any time. We actually employ an editor for both those channels. It, they just about earn enough to pay an editor and then we break even. And that's mm -hmm. that's it. So, yeah, it's it's mainly because it's fun, and why and why wouldn't we? It also means I can now play golf once a month and tell my wife that it's for work, <laughs> and that helps. And you can get the petrol on expenses as well. Yeah, I probably can. I'm not organised enough to do that, but I should do. Um, so, finally, is there anything else that you sort of got in the pipeline, or anything else you want to tell us about anything that's coming up? There's always things, David and Justin. <laughs> I, I can definitely hint at things. We're, we're definitely keen that the Taskmaster universe keeps expanding and we try to give people more things to do. The horn section, we're really always desperate to um, put something on the screen with them because we're always in other people's shows. We're often in Countdown or The Last Leg or Peter Crouch show, weirdly. And we are keen and always working on things there. 
And then I've always got, you know, I guess like you guys, I've got ideas for formats, but it's really hard to get them on telly, really hard. And people think that once you've got a show that works to some extent, other doors will open. But those doors only open a certain amount. So I, I have recently done a taste of tape and a pilot of a couple of ideas, but there's no guarantees of things working and people, commissioners don't know what's going to be the next thing. And I'm really keen to not do a Taskmaster style thing. And, you know, I'm really keen to try to do something slightly brave and different, which is harder to get across the line, I think. So I'm in a really fun place where I can try things out, but I'm definitely not in a place where I can guarantee getting anything on the screen. I'm not, I'm not at Richard Osman levels. <laughs> so in the meantime, people can uh, buy the Taskmaster book, uh, the board game, and go and see you and the Horn section who are, are touring around the country. Um, so Alex Horn, uh, thank you so much for joining us on TV Show and Tell. Thank you, both of you. And we'll have one more bite from Alex at the end of the show as he brings us something to show and tell us, which explains about how he gets his ideas. It's time for our big issue. And this time we are going to look at our channels dead. So in this age of time shifting program planners and direct downloads, are we all channel controllers now? Is there really a need for linear programming? Uh, well, as we said earlier, Sky One is no more, but yet the BBC are going to bring back BBC Three. So, um, where do we start with all this? Do you do, how, how do you think, Justin? Well, we are in the big experimental stage in a way. Uh, we've uh, the history of television is is one of scheduled linear programming. Um, and the last few years, we've had this massive shift to non-linear, non-scheduled programming, where basically it's a bit like going into the supermarket and uh, we find stuff or we have stuff pushed towards us through advertising. And we've experienced that. Um, I think the question now is whether having experienced that, whether that is an entirely beneficial uh, wonderful experience, both as viewers and program makers, or whether it's throwing up some issues um, that we didn't know we had. The way that television programs are, are delivered in different for in forms is, is also <clears throat> of interest, I think, here. I mean, like, you could say that scheduling is old-fashioned, but in fact, I would say, in some ways, people online who are, say, Twitch streamers or YouTubers, are using the same tricks that old-fashioned, in inverted quotes, TV schedulers would have used. So, for example, I know a friend of mine who runs his YouTube channel, and he releases his videos at a particular time in the day because he's worked out that that's the time when most people are bored at work. Mm-hmm. And 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 they they sort of go okay. I, I think that that you know, when people are bored, they want to watch something that's five or ten minutes while they have their sort of final cup of coffee of the day. And I'm going to release my videos then. And then there are some YouTubers, for example, who might work in the UK, but they release their videos at midnight because what they've done is they've looked at their demographics. And and what the charts they get from YouTube are saying is, well, 75% of your audience happens to live in the USA. <laughs> so they are releasing them at midnight to catch the USA audience. I think that's a very good point. I mean, let, let's let's go back a bit and look at what is the point of scheduling. You know, why, why was scheduling there in the first place? And as you say, you know, one aspect of scheduling is in order to point the right programs at the right audience at the right time of day. 
which is why we have you know daytime programming and we breakfast tv um access prime time shoulder programming um prime time late night and so on and so on and as program makers uh we've worked to those slots for a very long time now you take them away and that's all very well right anyone can watch anything anytime but it does give you a problem in terms of how you're defining the audience that you're aiming it at. Essentially, you have to aim everything at everyone at all times. And that affects things like comedy. Um, it affects things like uh, male-female demographic viewing and so on and so on. And those things actually you know, make things a lot more generalized. Yeah, but let's let's also not forget scheduling is a war. <laughs> scheduling is the is the battle for eyeballs to to, to come to your channel. Yes, it's I mean, it. the but, the- but it's a it's a tool as well as a as as, as a weapon. Is, is what I'm saying. I mean, of course, it's a weapon because you're competing against other scheduled programming. But without it, you're just competing against all programming. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that let's supposing you make a show for for Netflix or an Amazon original, if anyone can watch it at any time of day or night, um, when it was on originally or a week later or a year later or whatever, then you are competing against any other program that people could watch at any other time. You're competing against entire catalogs as opposed to three or four or five or 10 or even a hundred other shows that are schedules at a particular time so that's an interesting point because originally people such as your netflixes were happy to just go right there you are there's a box set off you go go and watch all of the things uh, anytime you like uh, you can uh, watch this show uh, from start to finish and and um, that's fine and then there's been a bit of a row back on that because then that means everybody has kind of watched different parts of the show at different times and and there's no anticipation because some people might have finished it weeks before other people have, have managed to see the show so there are certain certain shows now that they that they are actually back back on a regular scheduled weekly release absolutely i mean you see this on uh, on apple tv plus for example uh, where they drop shows on a weekly basis, and you see it on HBO Max. So HBO Max is the Warner Brothers um, streamer, but it, Warner Brothers own the HBO back catalogue. Uh, so if it's a back catalogue program, like you want to watch The Sopranos, you can watch all of it in one go. But new and original programming is is dropped on a on a daily or a weekly scheduled basis. Um, as was originally the, the case. And that is because they want to build anticipation. I mean, that's another factor in this is marketing. I mean, you, yes, we get these emails from Netflix saying, oh, there's this new show on, you know, do you want to have a look at it? Usually it's telling me about a show that apparently is aimed at me and is absolutely not. The algorithm is very peculiar. Um, I think. Tr- I thought you'd be a big fan of squids from Mars. <laughs> but truthfully, I'm amazed with the streamers that the vast majority of the things that I choose to watch have come through word of mouth. Another important thing about scheduling is um, protecting new content and new talent. Um, So if you're a a new comedian or you have a, a brand new show that's a bit risky in the old days and still on terrestrial television, 
um, the schedulers, who, by the way, have a very uh, senior job, protect and encourage your new programming. So one way is is from the show that um, has gone just before it. Um, so the audience that you inherit from a show can be uh, incredibly valuable or very damaging to your new show. So if you know, for example, that at five to eight, you're going to have a female skewed audience, the majority of which are between um, 35 and 45, um, then you're not likely to put an adrenaline-fueled uh, Ross Kemp-led uh, reality series straight after it because you'll just lose the audience you've got and you've got to go and find the audience you want. Um, Similarly, if you've got a, a new show or a new talent, you might well want to put two established shows on either side of it so that it is supported both on the way in and the way out. And the, the technical term for that is called? It's called hammocking. Hammocking, right. I didn't know Hammocking, that. yeah. Because the thing is you expect the show in the middle to sag somewhat because it's new or not so, not so popular. I've got some other sort of interesting little bits of, uh, of old, old school scheduling terminology. Um, so pre-echo, do you know what that is? No. You gave an example of pre-echo earlier in this uh, podcast. Uh, so you're saying about your show was higher ratings than Channel 4 News because mm -hmm. people used to tune in for a few minutes before the start of, let's say, the 8 o'clock show. So pre-echo is when you put on a, a new or less popular show bef just before a popular one in the hope that you're going to catch people a little bit earlier. Um, have you heard of what hot switching is? Um, I have heard of that, but remind me. So um, I saw an example of hot switching just the other day that uh, made me sit up upright. It was the end of a cricket match, and then almost as, as, as if the last ball had been bowled, a presenter just popped up in vision saying, don't forget, we've got the England T20 match coming up in half an hour, so don't forget about that. So they, they sort of leapt out of the, of the sort of um, the host broadcast to hot switch to almost start the next program oh, early. Right, right. The worst, um, the worst piece of jargon that of, of for scheduling that I think I ever came across was a gold blend moment. <laughs> and what they meant by a gold blend moment was that um, this was the moment where um, the the housewife would have seen the kids off to school, seen the husband off to school, done the washing and the hoovering, and now deserved a treat. This is when she would sit down on the sofa with a Take, take a penny off. Yes, take a take a take it. Well, take a house coat off, um, <laughs> and put get a cup of gold blend and a digestive biscuit and sit down to watch this programming. A couple of other little bits of jargon: um, tent pole. So tent pole, tent pole. I know. So tent pole programming is a show that effectively holds up the rest of the schedule, um, like a tent pole uh, holds up a, a big top. Um, so an example of tentpole programming would be, say, Strictly Cup Dancing, um, which sits there and effectively raises the audience on either side of it and is the appointment to view. And finally, Junction. So Junction is the point where you transition from one show to another show. 
And what you're aiming to do as a broadcaster is carry the audience across the junction. So, you know, there are a number of ways to do that. You know, one of them we've, we've said is about scheduling things that will appeal um, to the same audiences. Another is to trail the next show during the credits of the previous show and various other sort of scheduling tricks. So if, you, if you're if uh, you something like, say, Sky or the BBC, where you've got several channels, mm-hmm. you could also sort of go, well, we're about to do this cake show, but if you don't want cakes, then on, on the second channel, we've got something <clears throat> else. So yeah. you, you, that's an, an opportunity to try and keep your traffic yeah. within your ecosystem. There's also a very peculiar thing, which I, I don't know if it's still true, but BBC Two always seemed to be about two minutes adrift of BBC One. Um, <laughs> so if you tune into BBC Two... It's exactly nine o'clock. The show hasn't started yet. Maybe that's like a really early example of time shifting. It was like mm. BBC plus 0.04. <laughs> I think it's worth um, mentioning um, social media at this point as well, because going back to your, your point about tentpole, is that the other um, negative about not scheduling a program is how you get chatter around it. Um, unless the show is going out at a particular time that people know, um, it's harder to get people to be talking about it while it is going out. So it is why the broadcasters still choose to make large, um, expensive talk about telly at specific and, and scheduled times of day because they want people to watch it together and they want people to talk about it together. And to use those hashtags. Don't forget about those hashtags, Justin. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> use the hashtags. But, you know, this is the problem that um, the streamers have had uh, where they've done their copycat genre shows, where they've done their version of Project Run, where they've done their version of Strictly Come Dancing, they've done their version of Dancing on Ice. But their shows sit in a, in a, a drift in the sea of time. Um, and there's an absolutely no guarantee or way to get people to watch it as it goes out at the same time. So that's another thing that YouTube has learned about scheduling is that they've allowed people to schedule premieres. So when you put up a video, rather than <coughs> just sort of being a case of like, boink, I've, it's up, go and watch it whenever you like, you can schedule and say, right, I'm, we're going to show a live v- viewing watch party at 4 p.m. for this particular mm-hmm. view, uh, video, and people can <coughs> watch it watch it live with everybody else chatting away if they want to do so or if they miss it then they can just come back and download the video as any other right, normal youtube right. video yeah. and watch it watch it later yeah now but we're, we're talking about scheduling being a competitive thing but it's not necessarily that case uh, so for example um this last thing they on twitch i have some friends that um all do um some various types of online game show and once they've finished um their stream they is a bit like a junction. They they sort of go, well, I'm about to finish my programming, so let's see who else is broadcasting. Oh, my friend so and so is is doing something else. Mm. Why don't we go and they this, they call it a raid? So they they go and you go and raid this other person. Maybe only ten percent of those people will, will hang around for more than the, the first couple of minutes. It's all kind of done in, a, in an altruistic fashion, in a kind of community sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think there's lots of interesting examples. I think um I mean if you look at things like Fortnite for example, I mean Fortnite is is dropped in a season. Um mm. and those seasons are, are are 13 weeks I think. 
um, which is very parallel to the 13 week seasons you get in American TV. Absolutely. That is, that is a good analogy. So going back to our uh, initial question, are channels dead? My opinion is I don't think they are. I don't think scheduling is dead. I think, I think from a, a user's point of view, it probably feels like we are in the period of anything goes at any time. But I think that in terms of what's going on behind the scenes, as broadcasters and streamers are broadcasters, as all broadcasters, you know, fight and try to find ways to pull their audiences in. I think they are rediscovering the, the tools of scheduling. They may they may operate in a slightly different way, but I think they're beginning to appreciate what's been lost um, and are looking f- to find ways to use them again. Okay, so we're back with Alex Horner. Alex, we ask people on TV show and tell to bring us a thing that sort of explains something like a little anecdote or something about the way you work. So tell us, what is the object that you've got for us? Well, the object is something I'm very embarrassed about, and I, I rarely tell people about this thing I've, I own. It is a hot tub, and I was so embarrassed about it. I actually <laughs> I got it on the same day that, Rick, that Rob Beckett got his hot tub, and I was, I was going to... Um, tweet about it and then i saw him tweet about it and then i saw the responses that he got people <laughs> people found it very funny and teased him a lot but it's quite i think it's quite in character for rob to have a hot tub i'm not sure if it's in my character but i really like having baths i have baths all the time i think it's a really good place to unwind and think things through because you can't we well can but you shouldn't look at technology while you're in the bath um it's the equivalent of a long walk for me it, it does something to my brain. It freezes it up. And so I thought a hot tub would be basically a bath that is always ready for you. And I prefer, you know, a bath outside. What's not to like? And actually the kids love it. And my wife loves it. It's a good thing for the family. We all get in there and they can't be on devices as well. So we all sit and look at each other. It is brilliant for family life. And, you know, we had Christmas there with 12 people. Sometimes the kids, five-side football teams, come back and get in it. So it's, you know, it's not in good nick. But anyway, it, it's well used. But it is the place where I come up with most of my tasks. I have a waterproof notebook that was designed for mountaineers, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, which doesn't really work very well. It's a sort of pen on this rubbery paper. Yeah, I, I'm often in there late at night, burbling away to myself. And it's very rarely I come out with fully formed ideas, but I can come out with 10 ideas on a good session that, that, will, that I then need to go away and work up. But that, so that's my object. It's not a very mobile object. What is it about bubbles tingling around your body? That... <laughs> you know what? I don't even. I don't even turn the bubbles on. It's not even the bubbles. Oh, I really? find the bubbles off putting. They're too. They're too much for me. So I just sit in this hot pool. It might be quite sort of some Neolithic urge to just sit in a hot geyser, you know, or or find some Red Sea type uh, body of water to immerse yourself in. <laughs> So I have to have the water really hot in a hot tub to free up part of my brain. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't really want to drill down in it too much because it might <laughs> it might ruin the magic if I knew what was going on. All right, well, we'll leave it then. So, uh, Alex Holland, thank you very much for showing us your hot tub. Pleasure. 
All right, so it's time for our little quiz at the end called Fake or Format. Uh, one of these formats is completely made up, and the other is a real TV format. Each week we take turns to tease each other, and this time it is Justin's turn to ask me to decide which is which. So go ahead, sir, do your worst. Okay, so I've got two formats for you uh, with very short descriptions. And what, as, as you say, what I'd like to know is which of this is a format and which of this is fake. So the first format is called Bet on Your Baboon. And <laughs> right. Bet on Your Baboon. And in this show, two teams spend a month bonding with a baboon. And then in the show itself, they must bet on whether their baboon can perform a series of tasks. <laughs> okay, that's Bet on Your Baboon. The second show is called Turbulence, okay? Turbulence. Um, it's set on a plane, and you've got contestants who are flying to a holiday destination. However, any incorrect answer they give causes the plane to wobble uh, or drop. In other words, to hit turbulence. So which of those is the fake, and which of those is the format? I remember, I've got a long memory for <laughs> I've got a long memory for quiz shows and pilots and things which worries and me I remember that I remember there was a show called Beat the Chimp which was with Tim Vine which was like the American version of Fluke which was effectively a show where there was just a load of 50-50 choices and mm -hmm. um in the UK they just did it as as a random reveal but in the in the US they did it with a, a chimp randomly holding one card up or another so I, I mean, in a way, sort of bet on your kind of half exists, but I don't think it exists with that exact title. I think that's what you're trying to confuse me with. Mm -hmm. So I will say Turbulence is the real one, is the format. And you are correct. Turbulence uh, was a real show, um, or at least it was a real piloted show. I'm not entirely mm. sure whether it made it to air, literally. Um, <laughs> better <than> the, <laughs> I, I would hope most pilots do make it to where, otherwise uh, no one would go anywhere. Yeah, um, better on your baboon. Um, you're right. I mean, one of the, one of the weird things about writing these focal formats is that you write them and then you just check online and oh my god, there actually is a show that does this. Um, so yes, chimps have a, have appeared in a number of shows. I don't know about baboons as it stands and as at the time of recording. Bet on your baboon does not exist, um, but let's. However, it is copyright J Scroggy <laughs> Enterprises, twenty twenty one. I would, I would just think I would proudly go up and win the BAFTA. <laughs> All right. Well, um, it'll be my turn to ask Justin next time. And that's it for this time. You can follow us on Twitter at tv show podcast or you can email us on contact at tv show and tell dot com next time our special guest is top tv producer tom blakeson who's worked on many hit shows including pointless the million pound drop and the wheel, the wheel. so that'll definitely be worth listening out for until then i've been david bodicum and i've been justin scroggy join us next time for some more tv show and tell mm -hmm.